Welcome to Get Real, How to Live a More Authentic Life, with psychologist and author of over 75 books, Dr. Barry Weinhold. Welcome back to Get Real, How to Live a More Authentic Life with Dr. Barry Weinhold. My name is Ben Barber. I'm the producer of the show. And today we are talking a little bit more about uh, Barry's past and and uh, some resolution to that. Uh, Dr. Weinhold, welcome back to the show. Um, I'm so excited to be talking about that. But first, uh, last week you opened with a story about um, your time in Ukraine and uh, and we did we didn't mention it in that show. There was a link uh, for how to get involved, how to donate in the description of that episode um, in the show notes. But uh, you wanted to say a little bit more about that. So yeah, let's start with I mean, that. it's a horrendous situation. There's about 11 million refugees. Uh, about 4.5 of them have left the country, and and uh, over two, maybe almost 2.5 million went to Poland. But you can imagine just overnight. Uh, 2.5 million people showing up who have no place to stay, nothing to eat, uh, no jobs, nothing. And the Polish people have just opened their homes and their hearts to the Ukrainian refugees. It, it's it's a heartwarming story that many people don't even know much about. And, and one of the people who's trying to bring awareness to that is Sean Penn. And he has an organization called corerecovery.org uh, that has uh, is in Poland right now and they have, I think he said somewhere around 200 volunteers that are working in Poland to just help the Polish people with the refugee problem, which I think is really one of the other parts of the war that we don't hear a lot about. But it's, it's uh, and I know some people, other people in Warsaw who are dealing with uh, this problem. Uh, I met a, a young woman, or not a young woman, an older woman who is, is, uh, organizing a humanitarian effort to to house find housing for the refugees from Ukraine who are coming to Warsaw, and there are over a million refugees in Warsaw alone, and it's only a city of maybe three four million, and to imagine suddenly have a million people new people just show up overnight, must be a horrendous kind of burden to deal with, but they're doing a good job with a lot of help. And I mean, they need as much help as they can get because that's probably one of the most important parts of the war is how these people who fled and left often women and children leaving their father and husband and father behind to fight just to save the lives of the, uh, save their lives. And uh, they're now in other countries and, and it's, it's, uh, and I, I, I know some of the people involved in that too. And some of my, my colleagues are working in that realm. So uh, I remember one of my colleagues, I just want to share this quickly. Uh, 
he's a therapist. And he said, you know, all my life I've been a peace lover. I've tried to teach my clients how to live peaceful and authentic lives. And he said, now I want to kill Russians. What's wrong with me? So I had to, I sent him back a, a long reply to that to support him with, I mean, those are natural, normal feelings because they're wired into us as men to be protective of those we love. And he's protective of not only of his family, he has a wife and daughter, but also of his country. And naturally he'd want to fight and kill Russians who are now threatening that. And that's a survival mechanism that's wired into all men. Uh, and so I gave him a lot of support. He sent back a short, thank you. <laughs> so I, he's doing fine, although he did enlist in the military. Uh, and uh, But he was turned down because of a, a physical disability. So he's he said he'll be one of the last ones they call. Um, last week, you talked about... Uh, yourself and your story a little bit and and we and you painted um a very uh realistic uh grim picture uh, depiction of, of what that was like and and sort of the the horrors of some of your your uh really transformative um and, you know foundational years um so we wanted to open up this show also by talking a little bit about your uh, recovery story. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, some days or most days that feels like it happened to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a new person. I'm, I'm a different person than I was then. I'm outgoing. I'm not inhibited. I'm, 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 I'm you know, happy most of the time, not depressed. Uh, you know, all that's changed. Now, how did that happen? Well, gosh, it, it's kind of hard to remember exactly what happened. It happened over a long period of time, and there were many things that happened. But I remember one of the first things that happened that changed, that started the change happening. I was in graduate school, and I was taking a course in group therapy. And the professor was having us in, in a practice group that he was running as a mock therapist in the group. And, and it was, they tried to make it as real as possible. And in the middle of the group one day, he turns to me and he said, Barry, I don't think you're close to anyone. In front of all my colleagues. Oh, I, I, was, I was horrified. He had busted me. But he was right. He, I wasn't. I was, I was hiding behind this shell of a false self that I had developed very well to protect myself, to survive childhood. And now... I'm no longer needing that. And he's pointing it out. Yeah. And so I came home devastated, but thought about it. And he was right. I knew he was right. So that's when I got into therapy. That's when I started taking a look at myself and say, what is, what can I do about this? And that led to a lot of other discoveries, self-discoveries about myself. That And then I, I was in a training program to become a, a, um, a transactional analysis therapist. And I was uh, in a group with uh, one of the trainers, and she said, I do reparenting work. I said, what's that? And she described what she did, and uh, I said, that's for me. So I joined. It was an outpatient group. I went to Denver from Colorado Springs. It's about a 65-mile drive every every evening, once a week and went to a outpatient 
uh, reparenting group where she was my contract mom. And when everyone who came there uh, would, would regress and contract to do something from their infancy. And my first task was to learn how to trust my mother because she didn't act very trustworthy. So I had to develop a trust for this woman who was now my substitute, my contract mother. And so eventually I did until I was able to be held in her lap and being fed a bottle. That was how infantile this was. But that was the beginning of a, of a, a journey of recovering a lot of the authenticness of who I was and who I am and who I was at that very early infancy stage. I had to go back and regress and have reparented. I had new messages given to me, new experiences happening to me where I could trust again. I could trust other people. I could trust my mother to, to be there for me. And that was huge. I was in that group for about a year and a half. And then I graduated. <laughs> and and then just many other things. I, I, I started working with uh, teachers who I thought really had something to offer me. Uh, I got really connected with Dr. Jean Houston and, and she was inspiring to me. I remember the first time I heard her speak, my lower jaw was on the floor. I never heard anyone speak so eloquently about uh, life and about what I was experiencing. And so I, I signed up for a year long training with her and that was really useful. Uh, and then I, 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 uh, I also encountered Robert Bly, the poet, who was also one of the leaders of the men's movement. He and uh, James Hillman, the, the Jungian analyst, and um, Michael Mead, uh, the storyteller, all went uh, came to Boulder very frequently and did workshops. And so I attended on many of those. And they were hugely successful in terms of helping me find who I was as a man. And then I had a tremendous loss in my, in my life. My wife, Barbara, was killed in a skiing accident. And uh, I had to deal with grief. I had to deal with the dark night of the soul. And it took me so deep inside and so much I, that I had learned had to now be utilized to survive and thrive this loss. And, and so that, that, while it was a tragic event, it brought to me resource. It, it helped me develop or, or bring forth resources I didn't even know I had. I mean, there were times I wanted to die after her death. I thought, why did I not die with her, you know? But I survived and I'm, I not only survived, but I thrived. And so it's been life and the incidents that had happened to me and what I did with them that really has shaped who I am today. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I haven't had I'm great wealth or anything like that, but I've had health good health, which is probably about the, the best blessing anyone can have. And then I've had the luck of being having good teachers and good therapists and, and people who, who really cared about me. And, and, and so all of that has led me to where I am today. And so that's, that's kind of in a nutshell what uh, happened to me. Is that, uh, that help answer your question? It does. It it definitely uh, it definitely helps um, answer the question, and I think that it, it it also goes to show that it's not a quick fix, right? It's not something that that you just do and hey, yeah. you know, 
I thought about it for a second and I'm completely fine and everything's yeah, good. Yeah, right. It, it just doesn't happen that way. And unfortunately, uh, my clients often say, well, how, how long is this going to take? You know, that's, that's the one you hear a lot as a therapist. Well, it's hard to say, I say, but it depends on how hard you're going to work on this. But it also, to give you an average, I typically tell people that you're probably going to need at least a month for every year you're alive to get through this. So if you're 30, it's 30 months. And, and so, you know, it, that's an average. And some people do it faster. Uh, but and, and so how do, and then the other question they ask me is, how do I know I'm through it? Which is another interesting question. And so the answer I usually come up with is, you know you're through your, your issues when you can ask for what you want from other people in such a way that they're absolutely delighted to give it to you. Now, that to me is, is, is a marker of completion. All right. I like that. Yeah. I like that. You know, one of the things that, um, one of the things that stops us from ever starting that journey, right? Uh, cause you know, it's, it's a lot shorter of a journey when you're third, when you're 22 than it is when you're 36. Yeah. Um, literally like an entire year of your life of not having to deal with it. Uh, in addition to the 12 years, <laughs> in addition to the extra 12 years, uh, 14 yeah. years that you did that. Um, but what, um, it, uh, one of the things that stops us from doing that is shame, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is one of the things that I have to almost deal with this with every client I see. Uh, and, and first of all, I ask them, have you ever been in therapy before when I see them? And most of them will say, yeah, uh, I went to see this therapist when I had some crisis or something in my life. And I said, did they give you a diagnosis? And if they say yes, I say, I'm sorry. <laughs> because what they just did by giving you a diagnosis was they confirmed that there's something wrong with you. And I'm here to tell you there's nothing wrong with you. So what I try to do is really get people through the shame barrier, which shame is different from guilt. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is there's there's something actually wrong with me. And and if that if you're dealing with shame, it's pretty hard to to to, to change that. And so I work very diligently with my clients to help them get through their shame barrier. And I, I call it that. I say, you have a shame barrier. And we got before we can really work seriously on your issues, we need to get you past that. Mm -hmm. And usually it's what I'd said in the first episode uh, a couple of weeks ago, that I help them see that what they're dealing with isn't that there's something wrong with them. It's their natural learning style showing up. And, and just simply re people repeat whatever they didn't get finished in childhood. And so they basically have that kind of uh, uh, pattern that they don't know how to deal with. And so shame really um, is a way that uh, uh, prevents us from really looking realistically at who we are because we're hiding. the Most of what we're hiding is our real self because we're ashamed of it. And I, I try to help people see that that's not the part that you should be even ashamed of. It's the part you should be joyfully embracing. And, and so that's where it, it really messes people up and, and reverses the whole process. Because so the other thing that's important to know about that is that uh, our beliefs are what 
drive our behavior. Whatever we believe, we will act out in our behavior or even in our thoughts and our actions, our thought, what we, what we say and what we do. And so uh, if you want to try to eliminate shame, you've got to find out what are the shame-based beliefs you might have. Now, I have an inventory, a self-inventory, a self-assessment tool, which I'm, uh, we will actually uh, allow you to download and look at how much shame you carry around. And, and there's the 30 most common shame-based beliefs that I've done in my research is going to be uh, on that inventory. And, and then you have to just answer from a, on a scale of uh, one to four, one being uh, almost never does I, this show up. Uh, the other one is sometimes. And then the third one option is usually, and then the fourth one is almost always. So anything that shows up three or four is one to look at because that's likely a shame-based belief that's driving your behavior. And once you're aware of that, then you can kind of look at that and say, you know, how is this belief affecting my life? What's it causing me to do or say? And that's a kind of a way of beginning to recover your authentic self is seeing that this shame barrier has, has existed and it's, it's, blinding me from seeing what this belief, this set of beliefs I have uh, is, is uh, preventing me from seeing about myself. It, so it, it really it keeps you in a fog. And so again, I look at, okay, where did that come from? You weren't born with it. What happened or didn't happen in your childhood that caused you to believe that? And, and then we begin to then from there look at, okay, uh, how do you change that? And so sometimes just being aware of it, people change it. They say, oh, my God, I didn't even realize that was happening. I didn't get it. Now I know. And every time I, I start to do something, I think about that. What is What belief is, is causing me to think this way or want to behave that way? And so that, that uh, looking at the whole shame barrier is extremely important part of recovering your authentic self because it, it's the biggest barrier that I found to people even understanding that they do have an, a healthy, normal, authentic self inside of them. And, and that process, uh, then I also do some other very detailed work with people where I help them uh, access uh, the actual beliefs and the thoughts around the beliefs. And it's an affirmation process where they write the most positive, they look at what the negative belief is, and then they write the most positive opposite of that and, and use it on a piece of paper, on, draw a line in the middle, and on the left side, they'll write the negative belief, the shame-based beliefs. Then the other side, they'll write the most positive opposite of that. And then they'll wait for the noise to happen, the thoughts that'll come up, oh, well, that's not true. Oh, I, I couldn't, I never could be that. And then you write those down. And then you take those negative thoughts that come up and change them into positive. And you keep doing that back and forth, back and forth, until you reach a positive statement about yourself that does not draw any more negative. And that means you're through the frame, the chain barrier. And, and so it's not 
it's not that difficult, but it takes it takes some persistence and some willingness to to kind of sometimes people will do two, three hours of processing this before they get through it. Sometimes they'll do a section and then they'll wait and do some a week later. You know, it depends on how people. But I, that's a process that has uh, I found has really worked to help people totally eliminate the the old shame-based belief that they have that they're carrying with them. Well, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I have that PDF and I'm excited to, to do some of that work myself, honestly. Uh, you know, when, uh, when we're done with this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, that's fantastic. Uh, and, and just so you know, all of those resources you can get, um, at CICRCL.org. Uh, there's a link in the show notes um, for all of that. Uh, this show is brought to you by um, the Colorado... I'm, I'm going to get it wrong if I don't read it off the bottom of the screen. The Colorado Institute for Conflict Resolution and Creative Leadership. Um, and you can go to uh, Circle's website, again, in the show notes to get yeah, all yeah. of those resources and, yeah. and download that free assessment. Yeah. Um, uh, I have, I wanted to share one more story. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to ask if there's anything you wanted to say before. Yeah. Just as quickly, I have a client who uh, had so much shame about his body that if somebody touched him, he went into extreme pain. I mean, it was, it was a barrier that he had put up because of growing up in a family where he was shamed every day by his parents and everyone around him. And it was enormously difficult situation. And as a consequence, he's now married, has children, but he can't, he can't be touched. He can't hug anybody. And so I, I worked with him and I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to go right to the core on this one. I want you to agree that tonight you are going to curl up in the lap of your wife and let her touch you and hold you for as long as you could stand it. And I thought maybe he might be able to do that for five minutes, you know. But I thought, well, we'll start there. And if we get maybe another five minutes next week and we'll get to 10. And he actually did it and fell asleep in her lap. It totally blew him away. It never happened to him before in his life. Simply because he was willing to finally take the risk to break through the shame barrier. I love that. Yeah. That's a, it's a fantastic story. That's the power of this, of this work. And, um, and, you know, I just, I, I commend you for sharing your message with everybody uh, and, and, and doing so, so prolifically. Um, thank you so much. Again, you can get all of the all of the links to everything that we've talked about in this episode in the show notes, uh, the link for how to donate and help in Ukraine, and the link to all of those self-assessment stuff uh, by clicking the link to Circle. Um, Dr. Weinhold, thank you so much for this again, uh, and I hope that uh, you have a great week until I see you next time. Yeah, yeah. Have a good week, Ben. See you next week. For more information, please visit the Colorado Institute for Conflict Resolution and Creative Leadership at CICRCL.org or click the link in the show notes.